0: Good morning, Maranatha. That is your fifth good morning of the day. You guys say good morning to each other a lot. That's good, though. That is good. The slide up there says 34, 25 through 31. It's a personal challenge of mine to preach through the entire chapter of 34. So we're going to be getting the the backstory about the wonderful thing that we read this morning from 25 to 31. We're going to get really the context of what Israel is going through and God's word to Israel as they are in exile. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Ezekiel chapter 34 let me bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. and Lord, we praise your name that you gather the saints together one more time. Uh, Lord, by your providence, by your grace for your glory and our good. We pray, Lord, today as we take a look at this chapter of Ezekiel, your word unto us. Father, we would be assured of your perfect and caring leadership. That, Father, in our hearts we would be stirred to respond in love to you and to others. And, Father, the assurance of the gospel, the long-awaited Messiah, would encourage us, Lord, even through the power of the Spirit, Lord, would prompt us, give us what we need, provide all that we want and need in your Spirit, Father, to care for others the way that you care for us. Lord, we look at this and we say this is far beyond our abilities and Lord, that is true. Lost in our sin, we cannot do this, but Father, that is why we turn to you. So Father, ensure us with the gospel this morning. Help us by the truth of your word to do just as you ask us to do for your glory and our good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We are looking at a whole chapter here, but before we get into the chapter, I wanna talk about something else that a lot have, a lot of ink has been spilled on. And that is just simply the topic leadership. In a room this big, filled with this many people, probably some of you have heard that word before. I'm just going to venture out a guess there. But probably a lot of us have read about leadership. What makes a good leader? What would a leader be in order to earn the response of people around them to go ahead and follow them? Uh, You can Google this. Uh, It's really no mystery whatsoever. But some of the top things that make a good leader are, of course, a clear goal. Where is this guy going? Right? Where is he going? In addition to that vision, if he's going somewhere, well, what is this guy's plan in order to get there? What is his vision? Now, every good leader also needs a semi-decent personality. All right, this guy might have a good goal and a good plan, but if he is a thorn in your foot, chances are you're really just going to pass right by him. Of course, in addition to this, he needs assets. He needs the resources in order to go towards this goal and vision. And the list goes on and on and on, right? He needs to know how to do it. He needs a certain degree, right? And of course, he needs followers as well, right? If a guy comes up to you and says, I'm going to lead you. And you're like, well, where's everybody else? Yeah, Probably you're going to say, no, thank you. I'm good. That's what the world says a good leader is. A leader worth following. But I think if we just take a moment to just think about our own hearts, and our own desires, we would simultaneously agree with this list. Of course, all these things are good, and they all have the genetic makeup of a leader, of course. But really, when we look at somebody and contemplate inside of our mind and our heart, is this person worth following, usually it's boiled down to one singular concept. And that concept is, is this person going to help me meet my goals? person could have all these assets, the goals, vision, personality, assets, and go down the list, but if that person is headed in an opposite direction that you want to go, chances are you're going to say, sorry, I'll wait for the next guy. I'll wait for the person that I know is moving in the direction I want to go. In our hearts, we say a good leader is the one that helps me accomplish my goals, my desires. Now this world, if you're on social media, is full of people who are asking you to follow them to their goals. Uh, You don't need to go far, right? It's full of people who are not just asking, but almost in a sense demanding. It is for your good that you follow me to my goal. Now mix that with your heart. And the swirling desires that you have in your heart. Everything from good coffee and a good breakfast to a good church to a good life, a good family, all these things. And those desires are the, how can you say it, the thing that prompts us to find good leadership. Our good desires demand good leaders to work toward what it is we know is right So you mix this world of quote-unquote leaders with our hearts full of good desires, things that we want to see accomplished in our lives and the lives of others, and one thing becomes clear. We need help. We need help in a lot of ways. But today, we need help figuring out who is the right leader, who is the one that is worth our life. Who is the one that leads us to the goals that we not just want, and every good leader helps us shape our goals, not just want, but ultimately need? Who is that leader? Ezekiel is going to teach us who that leader is and why he is worth our life. But before I spill the beans, right, no spoiler alert just yet, before we get to who that is, right, let's just take a moment to think where we are in the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel 34 is not the first chapter of Ezekiel. That's Ezekiel chapter 1. I don't think I'm breaking any new ground there, right? But the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel, if you just read it straight through, it is full of judgment. Now, it's kind of weird because the people that Ezekiel is writing to, the Israelites, have already been exiled. Ezekiel is writing about maybe five years to about 30 years deep into the Babylonian exile of Israel. And so just thinking about that, it might seem like Ezekiel is kind of just hammering in the, the announcement of Israel's sin. Almost like he's bashing them when God has already judged them. But that is not what Ezekiel is doing. Ezekiel is assuring the Israelites that God's movement, his fulfillment of the promise to exile them for their unfaithfulness is actually God's work of justice. Ezekiel is reminding the exiled Israelites who are probably full of doubt and grief over what they've done and who God is. Ezekiel is reminding the exiled Israelites that God is just, That God is still in control. That God is actually right. Now, that rightness has shown up in their lives as exile, right? They were punished by God for their unfaithfulness, of course. But Ezekiel, in chapter 34, turns the page. Right? He turns a corner and he says God's justice, his righteousness, his plan did not only result in your exile, but actually results in something much greater. It results in a reversal. Ezekiel here in chapter 34 starts to outline God's gracious plan of reversing not just the destruction of sin, but reversing the sin in the hearts of his people. Ezekiel turns a corner and he says, listen, you may be exiled and you may be exiled for a generation, but God has a plan, a plan not just to remove you from exile, but a plan to give you what you need, his grace and redemption. Now, that sounds like good news because it is good news. It is fantastic news, not just for the Israelites, but for us as well. And as we think about this passage, we're going to simultaneously do two things. We're going to try to put ourselves in the Israelite shoes. What would it be like for the Israelites to hear about God's plan of reversal? But at the same time, we also have this dutiful work to look forward to the cross, to see how God's ultimate plan of redemption has come true in Jesus Christ. But until we get there, Ezekiel kind of starts off in a weird spot. Ezekiel starts off in this plan of reversal, starts off by talking directly to the leaders of Israel. Look at this in chapter 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Shepherds here just meaning any leader. You're talking kings, authorities, you're talking priests, Levites, anybody who had a specific role in leading the Israelites prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. All right, so he has this message for all the leaders of Israel. It's not a good one. continues, woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. And then he asks this very important question, shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? Now, I don't frequent Fort Lee. It took me about an hour and change to get here. I'm from a far off land called Sussex. All right? And that's way up north, and there are more trees than people up there. And what we have there is fields, fields full of animals, and sometimes children. It's kind of similar. All right? But animals. Now, you're thinking about what would it look like to base your livelihood on a group of animals? What was one of the things you would have to do for those animals? Feed them. If your livelihood was staked upon a group of smelly, disgusting creatures, one of the things you would have to do, you'd have to feed them. So here, God's question says, listen, shepherds, leaders of Israel, you had one job. You had one job. The job was to feed the flock. They didn't do that. What do they do instead? Look at verse 3 with me. You eat the fat, wear the wool, butcher the fanned animal, but you do not tend the flock. It's not that they just didn't feed the flock. It's not that they just didn't take care of or tend to Israel. It's that they did the exact opposite. They ate Israel. The words here in Hebrew are clear, right? This word for tend means to feed. And as we see in the beginning, right? You eat the fat. You wear the wool. You butcher the fattened animal. They went exactly opposite God's plan For leading Israel. Now, what does that lead? What does that do to Israel? Look at verse 4. You have not strengthened the weak, you have not healed the sick, you have not bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. Violence and cruelty. These Israelite leaders were absolutely violent and cruel, and this is an aspect of their selfishness. So, defeating the flock? Fed themselves using the flock. You want to think about what selfishness is. Selfishness is simply just using other people for your gain. Here, the Israelite leaders are doing just that. They see their role as shepherd, and instead of piloting the people towards their God, they are piloting them towards meeting their needs. And selfishly, they're doing that at the cost of the destruction of the Israelite people. These leaders were so selfish that rather than protecting the flock, they left them vulnerable. We see this here in verses 3 and 4. And not just vulnerable, but instead of providing for the flock, instead of feeding the flock, they left them needy. And then, of course, instead of pursuing the flock after they either try to run away or were exiled, of course, those who were lost or cast astray, they just let them go. Let them be lost. These are the results of this selfish leadership. Now, this had, of course, sweeping consequences. This violent and cruel leadership had consequences in the people. Look at verse 5. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. One of the first consequences we see here is what the Israelites are living out as Ezekiel writes this. They're living in exile. These leaders did not help them toward staying in Israel they scattered them. They cast them out. They made them lost. And now, as verse 5 says, they're scattered. Scattered throughout the land. Scattered through Babylon, and as we know, Assyria, and soon to be Persia, right? But more than that, more than just their physical scattering, in verse 6, we see really what the real cost to the selfish leadership is. Look at verse 6 with me. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. Now, as you read the Old Testament, mountains and high hills have a very special role to play. It's on the mountaintops that Israel usually sees God's glory. And we know what Israel does on top of its high hills. If you read throughout First and Second Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, on top of all the high hills is where all the altars go. So here, God isn't just condemning the leaders for saying, hey, you physically scattered my people, right? You are the ones that drove them out throughout the lands, But in addition to that, God is actually saying, you've actually done spiritual harm to my people. Because of your selfishness, their hearts are scattered. Their hearts are pursuing whatever God is put in front of them. Due to Israel's selfish leadership, the nation is exiled, of course, physically, but they have wandered away from their Lord, their God. And even that Just think about the exile. That is the picture of where Israel's heart is, scattered amongst the foreign nations, just as their heart is scattered amongst all the foreign gods. This goes to show that the Bible constantly affirms, almost in every single story, that leadership is powerful. It's important and it's powerful. We know what leaders do, right? Leaders shape hearts, they shape minds, they shape habits. That is what their job is. And the Bible affirms not just this power of leadership, but it affirms that selfish leaders come at a high cost. Now, maybe you guys have experienced this before, right? You follow somebody's plan for finances, somebody's plan for parenting, somebody's plan for churching, whatever it might be. And physically, the consequences have come. Maybe you have encountered financial woes because of somebody's Maybe you have made parenting mistakes because of somebody's plan. Maybe there are tarnished relationships that you have inside of your friends or inside of your family because you took somebody's advice. Somebody said, hey, follow my advice. And you said, you got it, pal. And two months later, you're like, why would I ever have done that? Now I'm suffering the consequences of this poor leadership. Maybe even deeper than that, Because of somebody else's leadership, advice, whatever, somebody else's call to follow them, you suffer deeper things. Maybe there's hurt, shame, depression. Maybe there's deeper spiritual consequences to the advice you've taken the leaders you've followed. Those are material costs to selfish leadership. But we can't mistake what God is telling Israel and telling us today. That the leaders we follow, if we're not careful, might end up leading us toward idolatry, compromised doctrine, maybe just a love for disobedience, maybe deeper yet, a loss of hope, love, or joy. As the Bible tells us, paints this picture for us, that leadership is powerful, leadership is important, it shows us that if we are pursuing the wrong leaders— Leaders that are not leading us, steering us, piloting us towards God, the consequences are dire. And it's not a material consequence that's at stake. It's the consequence of our heart to be led away from God. So we're going to wrestle with two questions today. And the first question is this. Who is leading you? Who is the person? Who is the organization? Who is the, the uh, leader in your life That you are saying, I am devoting myself to your plan. It might be something as simple as following somebody on Instagram. And you're just saying, you know what, guy? As much as it matters, I'm going to heart all your stuff. I'm going to like all your stuff. right? But maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe there's somebody that you are gaining your theology from. Maybe there's somebody left unchecked that you are giving your habits to, you are giving your mind to, you're giving your heart to. One of the questions here that the Bible poses for us is who is leading who? Who is effectively steering you? Now, the impulse might be, especially in America, no one's leading me. No one's leading me. I'm an adult. I'm an American. I can do whatever I want. I have my own game plan. As much as we would love for that to be true, one of the things we need to realize is that we are built for leadership. We're built to follow. We're built for a shepherd. So, since worship is on the line here, God is going to do something about it. Follow with me here in verse 7. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Because my flock, lacking a shepherd, has become prey and food for every wild animal, and because my my shepherds do not search for my flock, and because the shepherds feed themselves rather than the flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. God is doubling down on his message. He's saying, shepherds, your ears should be pointed towards me. I have a word for you. Verse 10. This is what the Lord God says Look, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my flock from them and prevent them from shepherding the flock. The shepherds will no longer feed themselves, for I will rescue my flock from their mouths so that they will not be food for them. God here warns these leaders, these spiritual leaders saying that he is against them. And you kind of get this view of it, where God is now standing over the leaders saying, I've entrusted you with my flock. I've given you my flock, my people, and you have wasted it. You've been selfish instead of selfless. You've led my people towards destruction instead of towards me. And he gets to the end here, and he says, no longer will they feed themselves on the flock, right? God's going to prevent that. But then we see at the end of verse 10, I will rescue my flock, From their mouths. So, what does this rescue look like? This is amazing. Verse 11. For this is what the Lord God says See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. God's saying here look, these leaders have scattered you. They've scattered you physically, but also in your heart, spiritually. I personally, God will search out the lost. They might be lost now, but God will soon bring them back. It gets even better. Continue in verse 12. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total darkness. Verse 13, I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them to their own soil. I will gather them from, uh, from the countries and bring them their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them in good pasture and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down This is the declaration of the Lord. As Israel is suffering in exile, thinking about all the ways that they have led themselves there and all the neediness that they have, God is saying the leaders have left you needy, but I will be the one who will provide what you need. He's going to give them a place. He's going to give them good pasture. He's going to bless them. He is going to give them rest. He's going to give them rest. Again, just imagine what it would be like for Israel to hear this from the Lord, right? As they're cast off, exiled in Babylon. That God is going to bring them back and give them rest. It actually gets even better than that. Verse 16. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, strengthen the weak. So the exact opposite of what the leaders decided to do here. God is saying, well, I'm going to fulfill that role. I am going to do that for you. But... I will destroy the fat and the strong and I will shepherd them with justice. So here you go. God's saying there's gonna be one more thing I'm gonna do. I'm gonna seek the lost, provide for the needy, but then as any good shepherd would do, he is going to protect his flock. Now again, put yourself in Israel's shoes here, right? This word of the Lord comes. God's saying, woe to you leaders. All the Israelites are like, yeah, woe to them, man. Yeah, let's get them. And then all of a sudden, God in verse 16 says, and I will be, or verse uh, 11, right? I'm going to be against the shepherds. Israel's like, mm-hmm, yeah, now we're talking. This starts to sound good. And then verse 16 comes around. And he's like, I will destroy the fat and the strong, right? Those that have gorged themselves on the people of Israel, God is now going to act out his justice from the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel. That just God is going to come after those selfish leaders. And you might just think in your head, if you're one of those Israelites, get them. Get them. It's their fault. They've done this. And now it is time for them to pay, but not so fast. What does God's justice look like amongst his people? Well, it looks like he takes down the prideful. Verse 17 says this. He clarifies his warning. God's just not going to safeguard the vulnerable from the selfish leaders. He's going to safeguard the vulnerable from selfish people. As for you, my flock. Now, he's kind of talking past the leaders. Now he's talking to the flock, all of Israel. The Lord God says this. Look, I'm going to judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the goats. Now, the difference here between rams and goats, of course, is rams are the leaders, right? They're the ones that are in charge. They're the ones that all the other goats follow. And so God is saying whoever has hoisted themselves up to that leadership position, whether that was a role given by God, like the priests and Levites, or whether that was self-assumed, just took it upon yourself to be a leader in the crowd. He's going to judge justly between these people. And we get why here in verses 18 through 19. We get the first why. It's this. Isn't it enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Or isn't it enough that you would drink the clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Yet my flock has to feed on what your feet have trampled and bring what your feet have muddied. The first reason why God is going to come against the selfish people of Israel is because they've tarnished, they've misused the good gifts of God. You just think back. Israel's unfaithfulness stemmed from this desire for the gift rather than the gift giver. This selfishness, this unfaithfulness was to look at the gifts coming from a good God and say, these are mine when God gave them. So that they would know that how good and right God is. So he will judge all those who misuse his gifts, of course. But then verses 20 through 22, we see what else. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Again, we're looking at this saying, all right, who's the fat sheep? Who's the lean sheep? The fat sheep are the ones who have gorged themselves on the people of Israel. They're the ones who have eaten the fat. They're the ones who are wearing the wool. They're the ones who have slaughtered the fattened calf. Those are the ones that have used others for personal gain. And lean sheep, of course, are those that have been used. So God is saying, right, I will judge between those that have used and those who have been used. Since you have pushed with flank and shoulder and butted all the weak ones with your horns until you scatter them all over. This picture here is of the rams using their horns to pound down, to beat down, right, the lean, sick, weak sheep, right? Since you have pushed with flank, shoulder, and butted all the weak ones with your horns until you scatter them all over. God's saying, not only have you misused the good gifts that I've provided you, but in addition to that, you've actually misused the people, the people I've given you. This flock that you were called to tend for, you've actually just consumed them for selfish gain. Now this brings us to a second question that we have for today. Not only who is leading you, but who are you leading? It would be easy for us, again, as Americans, to say, oh, yeah, it's their fault, right? I gave myself to them. I gave them money. I followed their plan. I read the book, right? I read the blog. But it's really their fault. It's not my fault, right? It's their fault. But yet we need to think about, in our own hearts, the areas that God has called us to lead. And we need to examine, in our own hearts, the reasons and the ways that we lead others. Of course, since we're at church, we might as well start at church, right? Church members, how are you guys leading each other? If the criteria here is not selfish leadership, but selfless leadership, the spiritual aim of leading others towards Christ, then church member, are you leading others towards Christ? Would you say that your relationships are you and others leading you and others towards a deeper love for God, a worship of him? But we can get even more broad than that. Parents, what does your leadership at home look like? It's easy for us to snap pictures of our kids and post them online and say, like, look how awesome my family is, and you should like it, and you should probably even give me money because of how awesome my family is, right? That's not the case, though, right? The case is, is that the Lord wants you to lead your children toward a knowledge of everlasting life in him through Jesus Christ. Children, man. What does it look like for you to follow the leadership and to lead your peers towards Christ? Truth is, we can go through all of our relationships and just think about, am I being selfish here or am I being selfless here? And even if I think I've convinced myself that I'm being selfless, just what goal is my selflessness toward? Is it towards the Lord? Is it towards the good of others so that they would know the Lord? Coworkers, friends, even just people you meet randomly, Are we helping others know Christ? Truth is, we all need rescue, and that's where God goes in verse 22 when he says, I will save my flock. I will save my flock. They will no longer be prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. God is our rescuer, and we need it. But now the question, thinking about from Israel's viewpoint, is what, when, how? When is this going to happen? What is it going to look like? How will it go down? Well, look at verse 23 with me. I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend to them himself and will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, Ezekiel jam-packs pretty much the entire Old Testament into two verses here, all right? So it's a lot to pull apart, but what we need to look at is that there is a royal shepherd coming. Somebody from the line of David will come, and this shepherd will be God, and this shepherd will meet all the needs of God's people. Now, who is it? It It's Jesus. God is saying here that the Messiah will come, and Jesus will be the one to perfectly care for his people. We get a glimpse of what this will look like in the conclusion of the chapter. Verse 25, I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate dangerous creatures from the land so that they will live securely in the wilderness. This perfect royal shepherd is going to come and he's going to make safety where he is. Continuing on, verses twenty six and twenty seven, I will make them in the area around my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in their season, and they will be showers of blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit, and the land will yield its produce. My flock will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of the yoke and rescue them from the power of those who enslave them. It's not just gonna bring peace, he's gonna bring security and provision. Again, these things that the leaders have not done, God is now promising this royal shepherd will do. And verses 28 and 29 gets even better. They will no longer be prey for the nations. The wild creatures of the earth will not consume them. They will live securely and no one will frighten them. I will establish for them a place renowned for its agriculture. And they will no longer be victims of famine in the land. They will no longer endure the insults of nations. The shepherd comes and protects his people. The shepherd comes and provides for the needy. The shepherd comes and seeks the lost. So today, looking forward to Christ, if you are hurt, broken, lost, need of healing, the Spirit is convicting you this morning that selfishness reigns in your heart and in your relationships, there's no other place to turn than to Jesus Christ And we have to say this about Jesus because maybe Israel at this moment would think to themselves, Lord, we've heard it before. We've heard the promise before, before before exile and now during exile that somebody will come. But we've seen the picture of what your leadership looks like in our faulty leaders and it's no good. But God, through Jesus, shows us that he is not a selfish leader but a sacrificial leader. Shows us Jesus' heart for love towards his people in his sacrifice. Hurt, broken, lost, confronted with your sin, it's hard to turn to someone in those moments. And yet, Jesus says, I love you, I've provided for you, you will find your security and protection in me for all eternity, turn towards me. Christ is not a selfish leader as we see all throughout the world, but a sacrificial leader leader. He is the one who perfectly meets our needs. This royal shepherd promised throughout the Old Testament comes and saves us from our sin and the destruction of others. We have to ask one final question here, and that is, what is our response to that? In verses 30 and 31, we get it. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people. This is the declaration of the Lord. You are my flock, the human flock of my pasture, and I am your God. This is the declaration of the Lord. If God cares for his people, then his people in response worship him. Again, we're getting down to the, the, the core destruction that we saw in the beginning of the passage. This isn't just a physical scattering. It is a spiritual scattering. And each one of us, we are spiritually scattered until the Lord rescues us. And yet we still wrestle with idolatry. We still rescue or uh, wrestle with Uh, spiritual scattering the Lord is caring towards us in that moment the Lord is the one through Jesus that unites us back to the purpose of worshiping him Jesus's perfect rescue of course meets all of our needs perfectly and so his care for us results in our worship for him I don't know if you saw it here in really this whole entire final section 25 through 31 But numerous times, three times, God says, and I will be your God. Here, God is saying, you've scattered yourself spiritually, but in the day that I care for you perfectly, you will know that I am your God. All wrongs will be made right in the truth of the gospel. The one thing that stands, of course, in between us and true genuine worship of God is our pride. And that's what the Lord is countering here, not just in the leaders, but the entire flock of Israel. Coming to them and saying, you've been prideful, but now it's time to exercise humility, to follow the right leader, to know Jesus' goals, and to seek humility toward him. This, of course, results in, just specifically here as we look at this passage, a following of the Lord humbly. His commands are our lifestyle. His provision is what we depend on. His word is our truth. We follow the Lord humbly in worship but then thinking out into the relationships that we have here in this church and in our families and at work and everywhere else, we ought to lead others humbly to the Lord in worship. Twofold, that is our worship, of course, to lead others towards God, but then also to see their worship restored in the Lord, whether that's a struggling brother or sister or somebody who doesn't have their faith in the Lord just yet. We're called to lead others humbly to the Lord in worship. But then lastly, also to follow those that God has put in authority over us humbly in worship to God. It might be easy for us to think, well, if God is going down with all these leaders, these selfish leaders, and my boss is definitely a selfish leader, well, then I can just abandon that relationship, right? He's destroying me. And yet God gives grace to those who are oppressed by those above them. And he still instructs us to follow him humbly and those he puts in authority over us in humility. These are aspects of worship as we look at those around us. So, final question. Are you needy? Do you think lost, broken, in need of bandaging? I need to be fed. I know I'm needy. Look to the shepherd, the royal shepherd, the promised shepherd. Christ is the one who perfectly cares for you. And as you receive the care that he provides you, Then let your worship of him increase. Trust the goodness of what he provides to you in the gospel. And then, of course, share that goodness with those around you so they may also increase in worship to God, the perfect shepherd. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chapter. Um, Lord, we, we thank you that your graciousness not just removes people from our lives that might be hurting and damaging us, The Lord also keeps people in our lives, that we need to know how good and gracious you are. Thank you, Lord, that in all things we can trust your sovereign plan to care for us as our perfect shepherd. And Lord, we pray that our worship for you would increase, and Father, that you would lead us towards yourself in worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.